Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einsteiner Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteiner Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science. Uh, in the studio with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning, sir. Morning, Dr. Shane. That was a fantastic show last week. I loved listening. Um, but this week, oh, there was so much traffic coming in. I thought it was the Grand Prix, but there was actually a bit of a, <laughs> a, a stack at the, one of the intersections over where I was coming through, and I just made it in. Like I, I was like touch and go. I was like, do I call the Triple R traffic chopper and ask for a lift? <laughs> I don't know if we uh, have one of those, but <laughs> but I applaud the use of the word stack. I haven't used it since '83. Yeah, well, I was I was again, I was afraid I was going to say car accident, and that would just be too American. So <laughs> yeah, no, I love a good stack. It's nothing like a good stack. Although it's the sort of thing I used to have on my bike. As people, you know, Ooh. chipped a bit of my chin once. wasn't good. You can't tell now, or, no, well, yeah. or you know, or you're just looking at other features and don't notice. Yeah, exactly. But either way, uh, folks, we've got uh, quite a lineup of guests coming into the show today. Uh, just myself and Ray. We have a bit of a gender imbalance today. I have to apologise for that. Uh, wasn't intended, but one of our guests yeah. is sick. Oh, so, that's right. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, she's getting uh, better. Um, but uh, we've got a lot on some good topics coming through. We're going to start off with some news. And uh, anyway, some news, Ray. Yes. Um, so I have uh, my my, uh, my first bit of news is a mammoth of a story. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a big story because um, in a museum in Amsterdam, an Australian company, Vow, which is a cultured meat company, uh, showcase their first ever mammoth meatball. And I don't mean big, big meatball. I'm a meatball out of mammoth meat. Yeah. Which, which, which I saw that and I went, oh, you know. It doesn't that, seem right, does it? It, it doesn't. And, and so, you know, the, 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 the founders and the, the company uh, representatives that were there, they had some great comments. They went, well, we wanted to go with an extinct species. And we thought the mammoth, because technically the mammoth – kind of died out from climate change i'm like well yeah but but not not anthropomorphic yeah, not yeah. not anthropogenic climate change but okay sure and and then i read about how they did it and i kind of went because i was sitting there going you know is this a matrix problem where like you know if no one's ever alive anymore that knows what chicken tastes like in the matrix how do you know chicken tastes like mm. chicken so no one's ever alive no one's alive anymore that ate a mammoth so how do you know it tastes like mammoth as it turns out, it's not actually yet for human consumption. But, but, okay. but after reading how they made it, I was a little less. I was even more skeptical that it's going to have that je ne sais quoi of mammoth. Because what they really did is they used one gene for mammoth. Um, they used it for myoglobin because they say really a lot of the aroma and color and taste for for meat comes from myoglobin. Now. That's probably true, but texture is really important. And what they did was they in injected the myoglobin gene into a sheep cell. And I went, mm, okay, so it's lammoth. Um, but I I'm still okay with that if you could try it. I mean, but, but then they went on. They were missing some said they had a few gaps in the DNA sequence. So when they were working on sequencing, I guess, making the gene, they used African DNA, elephant DNA to kind of fill in the gaps. And, and they said this, and I went, oh, I'm going to read this line, but I think geneticists everywhere are going to roll their eyes. 
uh, they they did this much like they do in the movie Jurassic Park, and oh. I'm like, oh, no, oh, they didn't. Right. Yeah, but uh, and they said, oh, the difference is we're making we're not making trying to recreate an animal to live, just cells to eat. I'm like, okay, I, I, I get I, I, that's probably not quite what they did, but they used genetics to snip things together. Yeah, I think uh, it's. Uh, <laughs> It's one of these things. I, so I saw this as I was uh, doom scrolling on Twitter yeah, earlier yeah. in the week, and I saw this meatball, and I thought, "What? You know, is this where we're starting? Are we starting yeah. with making?" I, I thought it was an IKEA ad for a minute, yeah. And then it was, it was like, it "Oh was... no, hang on, okay. Uh, it's a meatball made from made from a mammoth sort of genome. Yeah. Like, is this is this the first thing that we want to be doing here well, with an extinct I mean, species?" It, yeah, I mean, I didn't know we needed to bring it back to eat it. Um, yeah, <laughs> it just seems like. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and, and, and there's ecological reasons mammoths aren't around anymore. But, I mean, there were some nice things. So Vow's an Australian-founded company. They're located in Sydney. They have a production plant there. Mm. Um, they don't use – a lot of times cultured meat actually still uses cow's blood. They use a synthetic version. So I think that's healthier, possibly more sustainable. You know, And they have actually released products. I think their first product that's actually out – is in Singapore. It's called Morsel, and it's a cultured umami quail product. Right. So at least that one's still living. Uh, well, you know the species is anyway. So th- that was a that was a mammoth of a story. Uh, and yeah, okay. you know my partner who worked at IKEA <laughs> for for many years was actually the one who pointed me to that. So oh, the meatball well, IKEA thing. So there is thing. a connection yeah, yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit disturbing. I mean, you know, if they start bringing out dodo burgers or something, I, that's yeah. where I'm going to switch I'm gonna switch <laughs> off. Um, although you know, artificial production of, of cells of that type for food consumption, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not the best to exploring that because I think this is something that down the track we may be doing. That may be from things like uh, you know beetles. And worms. Yeah, and, you know, you we know. just need the protein, right? We don't. Exactly. We don't need to. We don't need to know what it looked like. I think it's probably better if we don't. Don't. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm okay of eating the insects. I'm good to go. Um, if it saves the saves the world, or well, actually, the world will keep going. Saves yeah. everything else on it. Anyway, uh, speaking of worlds, uh, some interesting work has come out in the last few weeks. Uh, published. Um, from the University of California. And this is from a researcher there named Anna Lobo. And she has been looking at extrasolar planets. So these are planets around stars other than our own sun and whether or not they will support life. And and I think most people have heard of this sort of Goldilocks zone where, and, you know, but to be fair, uh, Mars and Earth are both in this zone and, and ain't too pretty on Mars at the moment in terms of uh, living there. But yeah. Of course, one of the things you need for life, or at least we believe that you need for life, is the ability to have liquid water. And that means, you know, not too hot, not too cold, just right. You need enough liquid water for life to evolve and to to propagate. Now, when you look at extrasolar planets, so these are planets around other stars, there's ways in which we can determine um, whether that's the case. And in fact, the James Webb Telescope is uh, getting better and better at this sort of thing. And so, you know, we can pick up the, the signature of, of certain materials. So spectroscopically, we can work out, okay, this is what is in that particular world, and we can, um, we can sort that out. And then if we know approximately where it's located relative to its star, we can determine, you know, how hot or cold it is and, and work out, okay, maybe that is in the region where you could have liquid water and there's pretty clearly defined parameters around that so we can work that out but what is what is interesting about a lot of worlds is that they don't rotate in the same way that earth does so you know we we have this nice so the axis is slightly tilted yeah. um so we get our seasons but you know the earth rotates and so you know 
one side is in the sun for a while, warms up, then it turns around, it's in, away from the sun, and it cools down. And overall, you get a nice temperature range, that which works just perfectly for us. Of course, what happens if your planet is sort of tilted even further over, so that essentially one side of you is always facing the sun, and one side away, or... What say you are tidally locked? Now, what, what I mean by that is like the moon. You know how the moon, one side of it always faces Earth? Yeah. Well, you can have the same thing with a planet that's star, where one side oh. is always facing the star and one side is always in the darkness. So that means one side will be super hot and one side will be really cold. The question is, what's happening at the sort of small barrier between those two, which is called the, the terminator zone? So mm-hmm. this, is, this is that region where, yeah, not quite in the dark, not quite in the sun, just in the middle. And what Anna Lobo's been doing is using some climate models that we would normally use here on Earth to determine what the parameters are in these terminated zones around extrasolar planets. So is it possible that in that sort of narrow strip that is sort of not quite in the bright side, not quite in the dark side, but in the middle, you could potentially have liquid water in those regions, even if the two regions either side of it are problematic. And so this has sort of brought out some interesting interesting sort of results theoretically um, that say well actually yes you could potentially have life in those regions so you, you take this information and you go back to all those people who are studying extrasolar planets who are looking just for the ones in that goldilocks zone and all of us that, that have certain yeah. rotational parameters and all of a sudden you say hey now you've oh. got to look at all these ones as well interesting because these ones that have this terminator zone like this mm-hmm. annulus or a ring around them where not quite in the dark, not quite in the sun, that region might actually be an okay place for life. So just ups the number of extrasolar planets that could be potentially viable. I, Dr. Shane, I have a, a naive question here. Because yep. when you mentioned Earth and Mars, both in the Goldilocks zone, mm. Mars, kind of hard to live in. You know, yeah, so Mars... But, but, yeah, you need an atmosphere to have liquid water. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's part of. I mean, the Goldilocks zone is the temperatures mm. and the distances. But then still you need, need the stuff. Yeah. yeah. So if you have a rocky planet, you you could be. You know, if you have a Mercury in the Golden yeah. Goldilocks zone, it doesn't help you. Um, the problem with Mars, of course, is that Mars does has a very very thin atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And remember, it does have some atmosphere because we're currently, I think, it's on about the fiftieth odd flight flying oh, a helicopter, helicopter on Mars, which is amazing in itself. Very thin atmosphere there very cold and in fact water would uh, just be in the form of ice there so you wouldn't you wouldn't actually get any um, any liquid water on the surface but that is primarily because um, Mars doesn't have the magnetic field protection that the earth has so the oh. sun over a period has stripped the atmosphere away okay. and that has lost that, that so atmosphere. in theory you could have a planet with this terminus zone that it, it if it has a magnetic field could could be okay. good enough. Yeah. So, look, it's a it's an interesting one, and you know, then you've got uh, Venus, of course, which has gone the other way. Greenhouse uh, greenhouse effect has gone wild, and it's you know five hundred degrees, yeah. not comfy. No, no good. Um, but you know, very different. It's amazing how these planets, relatively close to each other, uh, have very different, um, very different parameters. And Earth, right in the middle, just right. So, yeah. yeah. All, right, uh, All right. You had another piece of news. I, I do. I do. This was. Um it was really interesting. It's when it's one of those things where you go, "Oh yeah, I guess that makes sense." But it's now changed my perception of of something that was just, you know, one of those those truths from your your childhood. And this is about the T Rex. Oh yeah. So um, researchers at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, who were actually earlier PhD students, chatting about this because it just bothered them about the T Rex, and um, and it came up this this week in, in in science, was they were talking about the fact that. 
All of the pictures of the T-Rex show the T-Rex with its teeth sticking out as if it yeah. doesn't have lips. Yeah. Or with, and for lizards, they're called labial scales. And so there was a lot of discussion about this. And you kind of go, well, why is it everybody drew it that way? And because in classifications, for some reason, the T-Rex was not that far from the crocodile. Right. Scary. Scary, you know. Yeah. And the crocodiles have their teeth out too. And they go, okay. But then they were really started thinking about the teeth. This is another great example of looking at the teeth of something and learning about how they lived. And, and so they said, well, this, th there's something here that doesn't add up. And they started looking at it in a detailed way. And they realized that, well, you know, crocodile – so enamel on teeth is what protects teeth. And so you can look at the skeletons of crocodiles or modern-day crocodiles as well as, as dinosaurs. And you can look at their enamel and you go, well, enamel has to stay hydrated to stay intact. Otherwise, the teeth erode. And if you look at crocodile teeth, they have really thick enamel, mm -hmm. and they stay hydrated because they're in water. Right. T-Rexes don't do that. And when you start looking at T-Rex teeth, they have very thin enamel. Mm -hmm. And what's more interesting is not only do they, they have thin enamel, they're not in water. And if you look at the skeletons and judge the age of the teeth in T-Rex heads, they're, they're not they – haven't the enamel hasn't worn away. It hasn't eroded. And so I think the – they think T-Rex would grow, regrow their teeth every year or two. And if you look at old T-Rex teeth that are still in the jaw, they look intact. They're not eroded. There's not a lot of damage to them. And they go, well, this kind of doesn't make sense because how could T-Rex still have un, un, unbeat up teeth? Uh, and so then they actually did a little bit more studies. They actually looked at the, the bone shape, the skull shape. And T-Rex is not as similar to a crocodile species as it is the Komodo dragon and the marine iguana. And so if you start to look at that, you see their skeletal structure and their likely muscle skeletal structure is more related to reptiles now that actually have skilt lips. Hmm. So they don't think that this is a huge revision of every rendering of the T-Rex yeah. that actually it probably had lips. And, and you go, <laughs> okay. That, that, I'm that not sure of, I'm scared now, although yeah. the teeth are still the same the, size. The, the teeth are, I mean, I was actually, I was talking to my son last night. I'm like, would you be scared? You don't see the teeth. You see a big, uh, you be, see a big dinosaur with really tiny arms waving in the air. I mean, you probably still run, but yeah. you don't know till it opens its mouth, the big surprise. Yeah. I want to and, know about the roar. <laughs> Does it still have the roar? We gonna, I don't want to lose that. <laughs> I, I, I hope not. <laughs> and, and the other, just as a side note, one really cool thing was, um, there was a perspective on this article written in Nature, and I saw the byline and got all excited because it was Deani Lewis, who is a former Einstein and GoGo host, yep. but also an award-winning journalist and, and science writer. So on, on Deani's page, I actually there was a, a contact section, so I said, hey, I really enjoyed the perspective. So she emailed me back and said, well, you know, thanks. And by the way, I emailed one of the researchers, and one of the things they look at is tooth deformities. And the types of tooth deformities you get with lizards with and without lips are different. So it actually has the impact of if T-Rex had scales, lips, scalia lips, are, um, you actually have to go back and look at the deformities in the light of they would their infections would be mm. different, their teeth would be different if they had lips or not too. So, Weird uh, stuff. We keep updating. You know, soon they're going to be these uh, polka dot looking, uh, <laughs> you know, massive lips, no teeth, you know, and uh, they won't roar. They'll bark. I don't know. The T-Rex keeps getting reinvented, but it's still scary as hell. Well, if it clucks, I'd still be scared of it. Yeah, but. Yeah, anything that size. Anything that size that can devour other things of similar size, <laughs> I think it's probably worth little humans. Yeah, it's, it's so lucky we weren't around at the I same know, time. I know this is a big statement for some people to hear, mainly in the U.S., southern parts, yeah. but uh, we weren't around at the same time as the T-Rex. 
Yeah. I wish we were. <laughs> Someone could have taken some photos, but we weren't. It's um, Yeah, that's not how it worked out. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, thankfully we still get to see their bones and some extraordinary stuff. Hey, have you seen the um, Triceratops shed at the museum? No, I want to oh. go. Um, I think we might go next week if we can. I need to go and see that. Oh. Uh, it's one of the most complete skeletons in the world, apparently. That's what I'm told. And, uh, yeah, there'll be something. So I... Yeah, I feel bad. Every time we come on the air, I think about it. I think, oh, damn it, I haven't seen that yet. So, anyway, it's there, folks. Uh, Museum Victoria, uh, one of the best Triceratops skeletons in the world. So, yeah, very cool stuff. There's other stuff, too. But, uh, yeah. All right, we're going to take a break for uh, some important station announcements. And when we come back, we'll be talking about some of the psychology behind conspiracy theories. So, Ooh. yeah, look out. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein the Go-Go on 3RRR. In the studio with us now is Dr. Matthew Marquez. He's from the Department of Psychology, Counseling and Therapy in the School of Psychology and Public Health at La Trobe University. Matt, welcome to the studio. Good morning. It's uh, great to have you in to talk about what is a very uh, interesting subject, and that is the idea of well, the, the psychology behind conspiracy theories. I mean... Let's start off with a bit of a definition. What do we mean by a conspiracy theory? What what fits into that category for you in, in your sort of world? Sure, I think that's a really valid question. So many of us would be exposed to conspiracy theories all the time. And so generally, and there is disagreement in the literature, of course, we're talking about uh, a malevolent act uh, by some powerful group of actors, yep. more, two or more conspirators uh, against the public. And it's usually something about maintaining secrecy or, you know, engaging in some act of malevolence, but it has to be in the public interest. It couldn't just be, you know, Greg and Jim down the road who are taking your bins away on a Thursday night. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, and it's certainly not those sorts of conspiracy theories that many of us engage around December time, which are potentially benevolent conspiracy theories where we talk about Santa Claus and, you know, right. doing things or even around Easter time with the Easter bunny. So they're they're really around these kind of acts of malevolent cover-ups usually and they involve powerful authorities so if my local council was only collecting every third bin and we were starting to get wind of this this would classify as a uh, potential potentially <laughs> uh actually <laughs> recent, <laughs> re- recently in adelaide we we did have a whole bunch of protests by people who were concerned that their local council was enacting a, a state of um you know i guess um, you know, that were quite uh, worried that the, the council was putting these chips on bins to tell them when they were ready right. to take out, and there was this surveillance uh, idea. So councils certainly aren't, um, you know, uh, immune from conspiracy theorising, but usually we're thinking about, you know, powerful entities, maybe pharmaceutical companies, corporations, right. governments, uh, secret shadowy figures uh, who are nameless. Yeah, those sorts of yeah. things. And so one of the things that's interesting here is when when we're – you know, in front of one of these things, or one of these conspiracy theories starts to present itself. Am I, uh, you know, as a person believing in that, and I, I use the word believe, I suppose, I'm not sure if that's even the right term, but am I rational? Am I irrational? Where does that sort of all fit? So I think initially the, a lot of the literature really did grab with this, grapple with this idea of rationality and that, and mm. that um, a gentleman, uh, Hofstetter, in the 1960s talked about sort of the irrationality of conspiracy theories and that they were this kind of paranoid delusion. But mm. what we know over time is that actually belief in them is quite common. And perhaps when we start to think about them as a belief of understanding our environment, usually around chaotic, catastrophic, large-scale events, then we start to kind of understand that many people might 
sort of drift towards these narratives, these explanations, and it's motivated by usually trying to satisfy these three things. So one is a need for certainty. And so mm-hmm. as humans, we really want to have a good sense and, and a good idea about what's going on. And so that might be certainty of knowledge, right? We yep. uh, have all experienced the pandemic. And one of the things the pandemic really, uh, you know, it threw up for many of us was just, you know, maybe economic uncertainty for yep. some of us, social uncertainty, all those sorts of things. And the other is sort of a sense of control over our environment. Yep. And yep. so reducing that kind of threat or sense of that things are outside of our control is really fundamental for us as humans. And the other, the final one is really a social motive, and that's a need to kind of belong to groups, belong to a community of people, and to maintain a positive sense of the self and self-esteem. And so from this perspective, some theorists really talk about as conspiracy theories as being a narrative or alluring to people who are maybe kind of lacking in some of these kind of needs, and conspiracy theories are appealing to people to satisfy these needs. But what we actually know from research is believing conspiracy theories actually makes people feel worse. So it makes people feel less certain about themselves. It makes people feel more powerless. It makes people feel more isolated, more on the fringe. Mm. And so whilst they are attractive as explanations for, you know, why, uh, you know, Jim down the road is stealing your bins or whatever, they actually don't really kind of satisfy that fundamental need that you might have at the end of the day. Is it more likely for people to dip into these when their mental health is compromised? It it could well be, and certainly we're learning more about what makes conspiracy theories appealing. What we don't know a lot in the literature yet uh, because of the, the kinds of studies that we do is we know a lot about why people don't believe in conspiracy theories because often our samples involve just general population and there might be, you know, five or eight percent of people who really believe in a lot of the theories. But what we find is that if you have a heightened sense of paranoia or heightened schizotypy, uh, you know, you kind of see these, uh, you know, you draw links between things in in, uh, society in general, then perhaps you're more likely to believe in conspiracy theories. Also, a sense of anxiety or high high levels of anxiousness and again that has to do with trying to reduce this uncertainty Mm. in your environment so those sorts of predispositions might make people more likely to believe in in some conspiracy theories so what you mentioned about if believing in a conspiracy theory in the end makes you feel less certain not more certain does that make them self-reinforcing like if you go down the path of buying into one and you feel less certain does that feeling of uncertainty then drive buying into another one and another one like does it compound itself like it's not just a disposition to go into one if you go down one you're kind of going down a path a little bit it could well be the case there's not a lot a lot of good evidence around this yet uh there there was a kind of a dominant theory this kind of idea of a monological belief system the idea that the more you believe in one conspiracy theory more likely you're to to believe in another conspiracy theory and so you find that people who agree that you know princess diana was killed as a result of the mi5 might also believe that there are cover-ups around 9-11 and those sorts of things so we don't actually know sort of the causes too much or the sequence of events and and that's what a lot of my colleagues and i are trying to do studies around sort of the sequencing but behind sort of motivations and belief and also believing in one conspiracy theory and how they're linked to believing in yeah. another conspiracy theory. We, we seem to be, as humans, hardwired for pattern recognition. You know, we, we seem to be really good at this. I mean, even if you start reading a book or you go and see a film, very early on you can determine whether or not you'll like it because 
of pattern recognition, right? You've, you've seen 100 films before, and in the first 30 seconds, you can almost say for sure, I will like this or not. Maybe not to exactly what degree, but you'll have a good feeling. Does that play into this? Because it seems to me as though we're, with this hardwiring of pattern recognition, we're constantly searching for patterns. And when when something like this starts to present itself, we, we see patterns, even sometimes that aren't there or, or make those connections very readily. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And and so one of the, the things that I think a lot of um, people who research this from within psychology try to, to make the point is that believing in conspiracy theory is kind of normal mm. and it may have an evolutionary right. adaptive function to it. And so if you think maybe our ancestors were quite distrustful of people outside in other groups and 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 uh you know people who could be potential threats then understanding and and kind of interpreting what might be a pattern of threat uh could be well adaptive to survival uh and so some some studies do show that you know seeing kind of randomness in patterns is associated with people's propensity to believe more in conspiracy yeah. theories so we know they're associated uh, and so we, we, we're making quick judgments around things a lot of the time and we're kind of drawing links and causal links between things. And we do also know that people who are more likely to use sort of intuitive type thinking, so the kind of the notion that if I asked you, you know, uh, there are people in a running race and you pass the person in second place, what position are you in now? And so you might yep. think. And so some people might think, okay, I'm in first place, but... You pause for a bit and you think through the question. You think, well, actually, I'm now still in second place because I passed the person in second place. We know these sorts of quick judgments are associated with also believing in conspiracy theories. So one of the things that we do know is that taking time to deliberate through and think more thoroughly through information can be a, sort of a way to decrease the effects of conspiracy theorising on people. Yeah, it's interesting. That second place thing is going to mess with a lot of people for a few hours, I suspect, when they think about that. <laughs> um, and it, it's, it's interesting because you know, one of the reasons I brought up the idea of, uh, around mental health, of course, is that you know these things aren't necessarily positive or negative. I mean, the, in fact, you know, when, when people have... Um, problems with their mental health so many things are tuned up you know like their anxieties and their responses can be tuned up and if if that then feeds into conspiracy theories if if you know that's part of that then this is something that is actually you know clinically relevant to to work out where people stand right oh very much so and so uh, perhaps you know 20 or 30 years ago conspiracy theories probably were treated from the perspective of mm. you know it's it's a delusion or, or maybe people are experiencing hallucinations mm. um to that extent i think it's it's an you know incredibly valid point that it's it's very critical to understand where the thresholds are for people and, and what sorts of things lead people to believe in conspiracy theories and the, and the factors that might exacerbate those what we're learning about more as well now is that there are very much social inputs too so right. we know things around income inequality or corruption levels in society uh, across large studies are also associated with people's propensity to believe in conspiracy theories and that's in part because some conspiracies do happen, and so people sure. are yeah. sensitive to and perceptive to those events occurring, but also because things like corruption or income inequality or even social precarity, you know, around that kind of certainty in your life might kind of make believing that, you know, there are powerful figures that are really kind of keeping things down for you mm. um, more attractive for you. And so it's kind of getting a, a broader understanding not only of the person but of the person within the society and, and what sorts of drive yeah. those uh, beliefs and conspiracy theories. Now, now Matt, 
coming from this, of course, is something very relevant to our show, which is at some point we want to pull people back um, or at least engage with them on, you know, scientific information. What what happens there? Because it seems as though no matter how much, and we see this in climate change, we see this in, in vaccinations, we see this in stem cell therapies over the years, we've seen it in so many different spaces where it seems impenetrable in terms of getting past someone who believes some of these conspiracy theories with, with scientific knowledge. And, and I think the word belief here is very important. I mean, whenever I hear someone say, oh, well, I believe in the science, I say, no, you don't believe in the science. In fact, the science doesn't care whether you believe it or not. It just is. Whereas in conspiracy theories, there's a belief system. So what, what's the scenario there with sort of bringing people back into you know, accepting scientific knowledge and so forth? Sure. So on one hand, in, in terms of a belief, you know, pe- people might believe that their football team's the best. They might believe uh, whether climate change is real or not. They might believe in vaccinations and, mm. uh, and not. So you're dealing with people's belief. And I guess if you're having a, a, an important conversation with somebody who's meaningful to you and not just some random person on social yep. media... Yep you should probably just ignore, Um, you know, be open-minded, be receptive, try to understand why it is that they hold those beliefs. And you might, through talking to them, you might find out, look, Mm. they've lost their job, they've had a really rough life, Um, you know, they may be from a group that's been uh, persecuted for some whole host of reasons, and so they might have experiences, countless experiences that you yourself may not have had that may make the idea of believing that there are powerful, shadowy groups or governments that you know, engage in medical experiments against their populations more appealing to them. And so starting from that kind of position of listening and understanding, I think is critical to really bridging the gap. The other aspect is around conspiracy theories. We know often people who believe conspiracy theories are very good at critical thinking in terms of they like Mm. to think through things. Now, they may not arrive at the same conclusions that you, but they really do think deeply about the issue. So engage that kind of critical thinking and maybe try to, you know, talk to them about, look at this particular resource or or let's talk about the, the issues. And I think the last couple of points are try to talk about the norms or the normative aspects of belief. So you might believe in particular conspiracy theories around, you know, COVID-19 vaccines, but the reality is that it's a very small proportion of people that actually believe that. So most people believe that they're safe and, and that they are effective and those sorts of things. So talk to them about sort of the normative guidelines. And the final one is where possible, try to restore that sense of control for them. So really where possible, try to uh, you know, talk about things that might be helpful for the person to, to make them feel like they've got more power and agency over decision-making in their life because we know feeling a sense of powerlessness is one of the the major predictors of why people might be believing in conspiracy theories. Yeah, I suppose it's a choose-your-own-adventure world out there on social media at the moment too, isn't it? Like if you, I could choose any conspiracy theory I liked and I'd find some people somewhere who would back it up with data and nonsense. Of course, and and I think... That's the potential risk. I mean, yeah. conspiracy theories have been around you know, for thousands yeah. of years. Yeah. You know, there are conspiracy theories about Emperor Nero burning down Rome, uh, the idea that he did that on purpose because he wanted to rebuild Rome in his own image. And so that's like, 2,000 years old. But these days you can go out, like you yeah. said, choose your own adventure. And, and I, I think the risk there is that kind of false consensus, that idea that you're finding these ideas and you presume that mm. these ideas are very widespread, but it might only be a very niche group of people that believe in something. And so really, if you think about the elements of a conspiracy theory, they involve some powerful entity that is involved in a malevolent act 
that is mm-hmm. usually trying to cover up or, or do some uh, harm against the public. And so you can create any kind of conspiracy theory with those three elements. And yeah. so I think it's important for people when they kind of come across these explanations of maybe large-scale events or catastrophic events, explanations in society, that they really stop and think, you know, what is the available evidence for this? And I'm certainly not saying that conspiracy theories don't happen because they're reported in the news all the time. Yep. It's just most of the time we ignore them because they're yeah. kind of boring they're or boring. They, you know, those sorts of things. <laughs> Not that, grand enough. That's right. Yeah, you want the really grand ones, I think. You, you know? do. You want those ones yeah. that are like Hollywood-esque or those yep. ones that, like you were, you were talking about in terms of pattern perception, we know the narrative. We know yeah. it from Hollywood films or from storytelling and those sorts of things. And that's also... Um, frustratingly in some ways what makes conspiracy theories so appealing is because we can speak to people about them we can kind of interact with others about them and so from that perspective you know the entertainment value of conspiracy theories is one of those things that kind of uh, really continues it on for some people it's a fascinating topic Matt. we could probably talk about for the rest of the show but i think it's it's, it does gives us an insight into how the brain manufactures things for itself often for its own good and it's not this is not a completely nefarious topic i mean this is something that the brain is doing Doing that may have very logical evolutionary reasons that um, make sense. So, uh, thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein and Gaga. Thanks for having me. Folks, we're going to take a short break for some music, and when we come back, we'll be talking about some new innovative projects that are coming out of uh, a couple of institutions. Really cool stuff. Triple R. Yeah, welcome back, people. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. We've got about 40, no, 21 minutes to go. I can't count. 40 down, 20 to go, something like that. Uh, in the studio with us now, we have two guests who are part of the Melbourne Bioinnovation Student Initiative, which we're going to learn about in a moment. We have Simon Huck. Good morning, Simon. How are you going? Good morning. Thank you. Good to have you in here. And we have Sean Dominic. Welcome, to hey, Sean. Good morning. How are you going? Good to have you in here. you got a bit of an accent there. I do, We yeah. both do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm from um, France, actually. Do you want to buy some submarines? Uh, no, no, not, not interested in submarines today. Too soon? Too soon? Uh, <laughs> uh, what can you do? Uh, we're going to make submarine jokes here for the rest of the year. I can't help it. It's, it's a low blow. Uh, it's a low blow, though. Now, uh, Sean, I might start with you. Can you tell us a bit about this um, bioinnovation student initiative? What's the what's the deal there? Because there's quite a few of you involved from various organizations and so forth. What's, what's it all about? Yeah, absolutely. So the Melbourne Bioinnovation Student Initiative is a group of students from medicine, science, and engineering who are interested in the application of technology to solve issues in the medical field. Okay. And so it's an amazing group of, of uh, it's, a, it's an organization of, of people who um, invite students to kind of work on capstone projects and help fund those projects. And it's, it's an incredible, incredible um, organization that just helps people to do that. Yeah. Right. And so you can just come in with any idea you want and you get in and there's some various levels of support. Yeah, Absolutely. So is is this through – I don't think it's limited to one university because you guys aren't even from the same university and one of you has graduated. But is this run through a university? You said Capstone Project or does it bridge a couple different universities? Yeah, so, so I use Capstone Project as kind of a, a broad term just to say a, a big project. You choose an idea and then you work on it little by little. But um, no, it's, it's, not, it's not affiliated to the university per se. So that's why um, students from Monash, students from University of Melbourne, students from MIT can all come together and work on the same project. Oh, yeah, fantastic. that's cool stuff. And does uh, everyone tend to be engineers? Well, what are your what are your backgrounds, guys? Yeah, I'm a I'm a recent graduate of the University of Melbourne, and I'm a biomedical engineer. Yep. Simon. 
I'm still studying electronics, engineering, and biomedical science. Right. Yeah, cool. Um, all right. Now, Simon, let's talk about your Project Moby. That's uh, the one you're working on. Now, you, you're you looking at helping patients that have peripheral edema. What is peripheral edema? It sounds like something on the outside of the body. Uh, almost. Yeah, peripheral <laughs> edema is when you have uh, fluid buildup that causes swelling, okay. uh, typically in your arms and legs. In your legs is the most common. Especially if you're aged 55 and over, it's pretty common around, I believe, um, 50, 60% of people can get it sometime in their lifetime. Yep. And this this can just be, you can just have it, or it's common post-surgery and so forth as well, I assume? Post-surgery, yes. And it can also naturally occur throughout your lifetime. And how do we normally deal with this? Normally, how you deal with it is, uh, well, you go to the clinic to speak to a clinician. Yep. Um, they either might give you a compression stocking. You wear the compression stock um, throughout the day. Um, when you wake up, um, you put it on. You typically need help from maybe a family member or someone else you trust to help put it on since it's very yeah. tight. tight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other one is a sort of air pump. Um, if you're familiar with like an air pump, like a blood pressure cuff, uh, you put yep. it around your arm, you puff it up. Um, same kind of thing. You put it on your leg, and a machine sort of fills it up with air, and it puts pressure on your leg. Um, the gold standard, though, is if you go to a physio, uh, they'll give you a leg massage, and they push the fluids sort of back up into your upper body so that they're not um, soling up your legs anymore. Yeah. I've, I've seen the – I've seen this – well, I've seen the physio version, obviously. <laughs> I've seen physios. They're great. Uh, my favorite clinicians. Well, you know, maybe optometrists. That's level those two love them uh but the the compression sort of air scenario i've seen those work and they're the weirdest things it's like some yeah. weird sort of it's like an external stomach around your leg and just, <laughs> you know pump up and down there they, they often use them in um in hospitals post-surgery and that i think yep. i assume to um, prevent clots as well right? yep exactly yeah so now you're working on an alternative uh tell us about that project maybe yes so project Moby is uh we're working on sort of active compression stocking. We wanted to look exactly like, or as close as possible to the compression stocking that people might usually use, but we wanted to be able to squeeze the leg for you. It should be really thin. You can wear it under your clothes even, um, and something that should be easy enough to use that you can use it at home without um, having to have someone there necessarily to help you put it on, take it off. Um, but similar to the air pump, it should be able to squeeze your leg and sort of emulate the massage that the physio might give you but it should be able to you know um be done at home whenever you might need it and so what what would be the sort of mechanism within the because you know these socks are normally made uh with a certain tightness you know their stitching and so forth is done i remember you probably remember right remember in the 80s there were those computer socks that fell up didn't fall down Anyone listening yeah. to this program who remembers that ad, <laughs> you're as old as me or greater. Yeah. Uh, but they, they designed them in a certain way, and compression yeah. stockings and so forth are made that way to be very tight and to hold themselves up. So how would you get – is this electronics into the sock to sort of um, have some sort of electronic interaction between the sock and, and some sort of controller? How would you do it? Yeah, uh, there's a bit of material science in here. Um, uh, some materials exist, and this is open research. Um, if you pass a voltage across it, mm. it'll change its stiffness, tightness. Um, we're using a certain kind of material like this. Uh, we'll design the compression stocking out of this material, and then it should be uh, sort of adjustable in size, shape, tightness. Um, so it'll fit each user or each patient exactly to their dimensions and squeeze um, 
the uh, sock to put the amount of pressure that they individually might need. Mm. Um, hopefully, this should be done sort of uh, set up by a clinician, so it'll know exactly how much pressure that this patient needs, and it'll do exactly that. Yeah, and presumably you can uh, you would be able to program various aspects of it around along the length and so forth too to do all sorts of fancy stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, our hope is it might do the same thing as the massage that a physio might do, but again, that's pretty uh, that's pretty far away. We're not yeah. sure if um, that's even possible, but we'll do our best. We don't want to replace the physios. They're so, they're always no. chatty. I like talking to them. <laughs> you know, they're good. But uh, but the, but of course, this has uh, a lot of applications, especially in you know regional remote areas where you may not have access to to some of those clinical services, right? Yes, yes, exactly. We want this to be available to hospitals, um, regional. Um, metropolitan, wherever people might need it. Yeah. Now, how far along are you in the process? How far along? <laughs> it's a good idea, but uh, where are we? We're super early. We're super early. Um, we are still validating our idea, make sure it's actually a problem that needs fixing. We're talking with um, clinicians, uh, physios, and uh, some patients as well, uh, sort of to know what their requirements are, uh, what their experiences are like, and then to see if we can help with that. Uh, we're also in parallel working on a few prototypes, um, some closer to our vision than others. Uh, and uh, once we have something that works, uh, we'll go from there. Hmm. Sounds good. All right, uh, Sean, now you, uh, you've you really got something going, Tensible. Tell yeah. us, uh, when I, t- is it Tensible or Tensible? It's Tensible, yeah. And it's, tensible. it's a play on word for the, the, the word tense, which is an yeah. um, uh, electrical stimulation device that helps people with... Um, who alleviate their pain. Yeah, so just talk us through that, because this is something that actually gives you small electrical shocks and somehow reduces pain. For, yeah, it sounds, very, it sounds very contradictory. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, very common in um, people having babies. Exactly, yeah, exactly. That's, and that's the main association is people um, who are in labor or whatever you have um, issues with, with period pain. I know Ovira is doing amazingly well. Mm. Shout out to them. And, uh, but there's also um, uses in, with EMS or TENS machines that help with muscle rehabilitation in physiotherapy clinics or hospitals as well. Yep. Um, and we want to use TENS machines and kind of help, like that would be a part of our marketing scheme, is to help pe- educate people on the benefits of TENS machines in, in general chronic pain mm. and how that can help you on a day-to-day maybe get the access to that immediate, uh, immediate pain relief. And is, is it a different device that you're sort of putting forward? How does it compare to what's already on the market? Yeah, so we're, so the innovation that we're so similar to Semien, we're super early days. Um, so it's it's difficult to kind of jump the gun and just start building something because you want to mm-hmm. make sure that you're you're targeting um, a specific need that users are going to be able to yep. purchase and it's going to help them um, in their their pain management journey. Um, but the device that we're we're working on is meant to add a biofeedback system, which is a, a broad term in in, mm-hmm. in research, but. Basically, we want to measure the the vital signs of uh, of individuals, so like things like their heart rate or other other um, physiological data. Yeah. Um, in addition to that, measure user feedback. So, for example, someone will rate on an app uh, from one to ten how much the tense machine helps them out that day. And using those data points, we want to teach the machine how to adapt to that person's specific pain needs over time. Um, so. Currently, mm. tense machines kind of provide um, a one-size-fits-all approach, so you kind of have to adapt it yeah. yourself. We plan to we, we would like to make that a more personalized um, experience. Yeah, interesting. And in terms of the the sort of side effects, are there are there side effects to the use of these machines? Because every now and then you see you know Facebook ad or something. Not that I'm on Facebook, but yeah. You know, 
and that talks you, you know, shows you some real muscly dude and, you know, <laughs> using something like a tens machine <laughs> to get there. I mean, are there, you know, obviously that's uh, BS, but yeah. um, are there side effects from using tens machines? Because electrical stimulation of the body is something we don't have a good understanding of, do we? No, it, it's very, it's very, it's difficult to, uh, there's a lot of research out there and I think the benefits are, are pretty clear in terms of how people like to use them. Mm. But in terms of how the, the actual functionality works, there's, there's, Different different hypotheses. Um, the the side effects to tense machines are if you use them for too long, or maybe you have a really intense stimulation, yep. um, that can kind of uh, create rashes on the skin or make right. it a bit irritable. Uh, but in terms of um, severe consequences, there are there are none right. um, or very few. It's it's a very safe device generally, and it's um, it's helpful for people who want a, a non invasive approach to, yeah, to yeah. pain relief. And are there different types of pain that is really successful for and, and some that it's not because you know there there is you know I mean back pain obviously is something that people have chronically um, but there are some other pains which are relatively you know short lived months you know is there is there a variation there in terms of how well the tens machines works yeah so we're, we're still still very much learning a lot about this stuff so mm. I don't want anyone to take my my word for anything I say right now but um, it is it is very I think it's very varying. Not only is pain very subjective, so it's hard to to make a general statement for that, but um, tense tense machines tend to to help people with um, uh, mild pain. I think very light forms of pain you probably don't need a tense machine for, but then very acute forms of pain um, tense machines might not help with. That being said... Tense machines are being used in in for labor pain, so right. and that was a extreme level of pain. pain. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. so it's very variable and it's dependent on the situation you you want to apply it to. Yeah, and how far along are you with the uh, with the program? Uh, the, yeah. <laughs> the infamous <laughs> question. We're we're super early days as well. We're still conducting a lot of market research, which is why if, if any of the listeners on the show suffer from chronic pain, I'd absolutely love for you guys to reach out to us to learn more about your experience and even get your your feedback on the idea that we're working on. Um, but yeah, so early stages, and we're also beginning to work on our prototype. We've okay. recently recruited uh, seven amazing students from the University of Melbourne to kind of work for us under um, MBSI, and they're gonna they're gonna help us kind of kickstart that process of building building a prototype. Very cool. Now, is there a website or a link people can go to if they want to give you that feedback? Absolutely. Yeah, I um, <laughs> I give you the address, but we're still trying to figure out the the domain name. But once we set it up, it'll be tensible.co. Right. Well, we can tweet it. You can yeah. send it to us, and we'll tweet it out when it's uh, when it's ready, and people That'd can be kind of look. Um, how many people are all up are going through the the bioinnovation student initiative? The so yeah, MBSI has eight teams working for them at the yep. moment. Um, I believe only three startups, including myself and Samin and another another uh, group of students, hmm. are, are trying to turn their idea into a more commercial aspect yep. um, and, and bring that to market. Uh, the other the other teams are working on these also incredible projects, but I don't think they have that that desire to turn it into a commercial device. At least not right. Yet, right yeah, that's now. okay. Still still yeah. good to look at oh, some of these things. Some of the best innovations sure. aren't devices too. So, yeah. yeah, you can talk to Dr. Ray. He's uh, been commercializing a device. Over the last couple of years, he's he's, yeah. he's going great as a result. <laughs> it's, it's fun now. Um, yeah, but sometimes you know we we joke that if we're if we're actually starting a company to commercialize our research, we failed all the other avenues first. You, know, you couldn't find a company, you couldn't find a partner, or it's when that thing doesn't exist and there's an company to partner with that's yeah. when you end up. 
That's what we do that path. When I used to do the stuff, we said fail fast and fail often. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, you're faster you learn, you know, because uh, in Australia we tend to have a negativity towards failure in the commercial space, but actually that's something that um, it's very rare that you'll get through without making some mistakes. Exactly, and it's very important to do those quickly because otherwise you're wasting time on, on yeah. something that's just never going to come to fruition. Absolutely. Well, Sean, Sam, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today. Good luck with these projects. They both sound really interesting, and, and you know, it sounds on the surface at least to be a real strong clinical need so, you know, I think you, you'll get a lot of support there if uh, you can make them work. So thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate you having us. Thanks for having us on. Folks, uh, our guests there are from the Melbourne Bioinnovation Student Initiative. Actually, uh, that was sent to me by Dr. Lauren. Um, awesome. So, yeah, very good stuff. We're going to take a short break for some station announcements, and we'll be back in just a few moments. Triple R. Uh, before we end the show, Ray, I just wanted to quickly mention that and people who watched me totally geek out about this, uh, you know, last year. But the Artemis launch uh, uh, of Artemis 2 is coming up this year. So Artemis 1 was the first time we sent a rocket basically around the moon. So NASA's Artemis rocket um, sent the Orion probe around or you know, craft around the moon. This is the first time we've done this since 1972. Yeah, we haven't been to the moon in a while. Only haven't been know, in a while. In Transformers movies, maybe, yeah. but not actually for real. Exactly. And so this uh, Artemis is capable of taking humans, and the idea is to land on the moon once again. And Artemis 1 was a very successful mission. There was a lot of hoo-ha around it because it was delayed several times, um, but of course, you know, they only did that when there was potential risk of the rocket being destroyed uh, or, or damaged. Uh, well, Artemis 2 is uh, happening later this year and this week is very exciting because we'll get to meet the four crew uh, members that will be going up on the orion uh, capsule on top of um, the space launch system which oh, is man. artemis 2 and uh, they will orbit uh, the moon uh, the mission's i think about 10 days long so you know i, I want to be with people i like <laughs> it's a small yeah, space <laughs> I'm not. I'm just thinking of him. I'm just thinking what people I know that I could handle being in the studio with for ten days. It's not many. Sorry, Ray. I'm yeah, sure I, we, don't, I, I, don't I don't think, think we'd make you. it. Um, <laughs> sorry, mate. But uh. but um, anyway, we'll learn. One of them will be Canadian. I think the other two, uh, three, will probably be American. Um, you know, the we'll, Canadian will be keeping everybody calm. calm. And, yeah, and, maybe. Yeah. Um, but uh, we'll learn who they are. I think it's uh, midweek, uh, which oh, will wow. be kind of cool. And of course, then you know, after that, we'll learn who the next people to walk on the moon will be. Um, the last person to walk on the moon had been on this show, Captain Gene, Gene Cernan, and um, sadly has now passed, but. Uh, he's been on Stanagogo in the past. So, anyway, it's um, it's all uh, good news, and and hopefully this time Artemis Two will launch the first time. Well, but if it doesn't, yeah. you know, safety matters. And, yeah. I, I just get excited at the concept of celebrity around astronauts again yeah. because when I was growing up. It was such a big deal, and then somebody's on the space station for a year. We're no like, one cares. No Scott one knows who? their name. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's all changed. So, anyway, uh, we're going to have to wrap up in a minute because I got to hand over to the team from Eat It. Uh, the very special show coming up, and we will um, we will uh, be you know chilling out. So, yeah. thanks for listening. To Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a great Sunday, and we'll see you next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einsteiner Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteiner Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.